0: Hi, folks. Andrew here. So we've got some good news and bad news for you. Good news first. uh, We're back from our break. We've got a bunch of great episodes in the hopper, and we've got some new guests and a lot of great movies that we're super excited to talk about. Bad news. Uh, It looks like we had some technical difficulties while recording this week's episode on the Rings of Power. Uh, Either we didn't do our regular sound check before we started, or maybe Rob's microphone got COVID while we were all away? Either way, it's really important to us that these episodes sound good, and we uh, even considered not releasing this. But with all the excitement brewing over this new Lord of the Rings show, we wanted to give you guys the option to dive in and listen anyway. So... Things this week may sound a little breezy, uh, sometimes a little bit more distant, maybe even a little bit muppety at times, but we've already sorted out the problem, and we'll be back in two weeks with our classic, smooth, dulcet tones that you know and love. So, that being said, enjoy our little chat for this week's episode of The Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power.
1: Welcome to The Meaning of the Movie, our podcast about what matters most when it comes to the film. You're about to hear a spoiler-filled discussion about the themes, the characters, and why this show is worth watching and thinking more deeply about. I'm your co-host. I'm not your co-host. I'm actually the real host of the show, Rob Stinnett, with my other real host, Andrew Harmon. Andrew, what's up?
0: what's up? I thought I was going to be the fake host. So thanks for introducing me as the other real host. That is a good time. Happy to be here. We're going to talk about some Lord of the Rings today.
1: The thing about podcasting, dude, is you open your mouth and then you start going and you're like, I don't know where this is going, but I got to land it. And that's that's most of the (laughs) art of
0: podcasting. Yep. You just start talking and hopefully you say something.
1: So here's what's crazy, bro, is we launched this podcast less than a year ago. But in the last year, I think since 2021, 2022, Our podcast is called The Meaning of the Movie, and this has been the best TV year in history, like at least right up there. Like, I can think of so many shows. I didn't even write them down. I'll just say them off the top of my head. Succession, The Rehearsal, Severance, Stranger Things Volume 4, Ted Lasso, Better Call Saul. Yeah. So many great shows that are ending or starting that I'm just in love with, and I'm like, oh, we have a movie podcast, but there's TV shows out there, and I don't know what to do about that.
0: Absolutely. I mean, there's all sorts of great stuff that's been coming across our screens and uh, we've started to, uh, you know, work its way into the show a little bit because we kind of have to talk about this stuff. There's no way around it.
1: Yeah. So I want to say this. We are a movie podcast. That's what we are. But in the same way that you can go to Burger King and sometimes you're like, you know what? I don't want a burger. I just want French toast sticks. They don't call it like Food King. They still call it (laughs) Burger King, but, you know, you can get French toast sticks at Burger King.
0: It's the same with our podcast. This is a wild metaphor
1: We're the meaning of the movie. But every now and again, we're going to be TV shows and we're not going to say the meaning of content like that's a lame title for a podcast. We're still the meaning of the movie. But every <laughs> now and again, we are. We have to talk about TV shows. Is that fair? Am I cheating?
0: I think we are cheating and I'm OK with that. I think that's fine. So today we're going to do our first episode on the Lord of the Rings show. We've seen the first two episodes. And we're going to react to that. And then in a couple of weeks here, once the whole show runs out, we'll do another reaction where we sort of talk through how the whole series went or the whole season of this show went. Um, they're going to do five seasons. At least that's what they have set up right now. So we're sort of trying this thing where occasionally we can get together as like a community and react to these shows that everybody is in here watching. And then we'll keep talking about the movies that we know and love.
1: Here's why I think we're allowed to do this is because unlike all those other things that I listed. Lord of the Rings started out as a series of movies, right? Like, that's kind of what we know them as. For sure. Like, Return of the King won Best Picture. Like, these are movies of the early 2000s. They're kind of the Star Wars of the early 2000s. Mm -hmm. So these movies matter deeply in film history. They matter in popular culture. And I think, like, this blended line between what's a film and what's a show, like, this is a great chance to talk about this tension that I feel like we're dealing with as viewers content creators are dealing with and everything else is out there
0: right and obviously this was a book series first for all the like tolkien nerds out there listening that said this i can feel the me like (laughs) right heard us say that this started as a film series uh we know these started as books in like the 40s but for the general pop culture most people including myself was really introduced to these through the films uh at the beginning of the 2000s
1: we're going to talk about rings of power but before we even get into the show i actually thought can we have a quick Lord of the Rings discussion like the original trilogy?
0: Yeah, let's do it. Um, My nerd card for Lord of the Rings is very, very small compared to so many of my friends. So I'm a little tentative to get into this conversation because I don't know everything I want to know to have this conversation.
1: I feel like I'm a medium when it comes to the original Lord of the Rings trilogy. I've seen it a lot. I've seen the extended editions like I know all the characters names. Once we get out of like the original trilogy, it starts to get really murky for me. Like, I don't know the Samarillion. I don't know all the annexes. I don't even like, I love the Hobbit book, actually. I think it's my favorite book of all of them. But the three Hobbit movies that came out, I think were kind of garbage. Rough. And so like, anyway, I, I feel my sweet spot about the first three movies. And I actually wrote down a couple of categories just to talk about them, which yeah. is, first of all, my most meaningful character in the movies. You want to hear what it is? Okay, let's go. It's Frodo. Like, let's not be cute about this. Frodo <laughs> is what gives Lord of the Rings meaning. Uh, I yeah. think it's he's so powerful in the sense of like, he's a hobbit, he's short, he's weak, and then he has to be the one to kind of carry this powerful ring into Mordor. He's the only one that can do it. And that scene and the original Lord of the Rings, it's just so powerful. And he's such a great protagonist in the fact that he, there's other guys that are better with the sword. There are other guys that are better with the bow and arrow. There are guys that are, faster or stronger or smarter, but he's the one guy who can carry the ring. And just that simple framing device, I think is part of what makes that series so phenomenal and so incredible.
0: Yeah. I I remember listening to the uh, interviews of Peter Jackson and everyone who was sort of helming that original series. And they said when they were in the editing room, They have all these different storylines, right? By the end of it, you've got Aragorn over here and Legolas and Gimli doing this over here and Gandalf doing something else, right? You have all these sort of disparate storylines, not as many as maybe we have today in some of the TV shows that we engage with, but they said that, like, everything is basically a servant to the Frodo storyline. If we get too far away from Frodo for too long, then we have to cut back to him, right? Or if Aragorn's story is not somehow pushing the Frodo thing forward, then it's less important. And so they structured all of the editing and the whole trilogy around him as a central protagonist when they could have really picked like more of a multi-protagonist story.
1: Well, and it's what makes the movie so grounded is that Frodo is there. He's trying to throw a ring in the volcano and that's it. I can say it in one sentence. And even though it's three books that are each like a couple of thousand pages, it feels like reading them all the way through. Um, right it's still a very very simple like one log line i get what we're doing i get what we're going for and it's the power of it
0: right what's your favorite frodo moment in the series then
1: so i feel like my mo- if there's one scene that i feel like encapsulates the whole series it's actually in return of the king and okay. there's this moment when golem goes and he takes him on the lamba bread and he like throws it off a cliff and then oh, sam wakes yeah, up yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> sam wakes up and he's like oh, man, what did you do? You took this bread, you threw it off. And then Frodo's like, no, he wouldn't eat the bread. It's you. Do you remember this scene?
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's like the, one of the most heartbreaking scenes in in the whole thing, because like Sam and Frodo are like they are a team. And this is the breakdown of that. And it is it is heartbreaking to see like and, you know, as the audience that like Frodo's being duped, it is it's awful.
1: Yeah, you, you've you seen everything that's happened. And what makes that scene so powerful to me is you have Sam, who is the ultimate good. You have Gollum, who's pretty much the ultimate evil. Like, he's kind of Satan. He's the snake that's always manipulating him. And you see Frodo just kind of pulled by, like, a wishbone between those two characters. And I think, again, that clarity of Sam, Gollum, and Frodo, like, that's what makes Lord of the Rings so timeless. That's why Amazon is willing to pay $250 million just for the rights to tell a Lord of the Rings story. Just to put a look, like, they essentially paid $250 million for a logo. And I think it's so powerful because Tolkien created these three characters that are just beautiful. And this that scene where it's ripped apart, I'm like, that's so powerful. That is the heart and soul of this
0: trilogy. Absolutely. So Amazon spent two hundred and fifty million dollars just for the rights, right? That doesn't include budget or anything, but it's just to the rights to the appendices. So they don't own the rights to the Lord of the Rings storyline or the Hobbit storyline. So they can't mention anything that comes out of those so they're not going to do
1: like a reboot they're not going to do like Dwayne Johnson is Aragorn like next year the the Amazon well you know
0: (laughs) if if they get the rights maybe but like everything that they do has to have come from or have a foothold in the appendices and the Cimmerillion all of the extra material which I think is really interesting
1: you know, you sound kind of like a Lord of the Rings nerd. Like, you seem to know a lot about this. I'm pretty impressed that you're in deep dive.
0: Well, you know, uh, if you're going to get on a podcast, maybe you got to do a little research on the front end.
1: <laughs> but I think my point with all this is that original trilogy, I started rewatching it again, and, like, I don't know how to explain my fandom. I've always really admired and liked it, but it doesn't hold the same place as Star Wars. It doesn't hold the same place as... Even like Predator or Die Hard or these other movies that I like, Back to the Future. Maybe because of the age and when I saw them. But for me, it's like a great movie, but not like a timeless classic. Um, But going back and revisit them, I'm like, oh, wow, these are really great stories. And they're a lot of fun. And they are, they're powerful storytelling.
0: I was thinking about it today. And I think The Lord of the Rings came out right in the sweet spot for me. I was like just going into high school. So like really impactful for me. I was thinking about it. And the Lord of the Rings trilogy may be the last kind of perfect trilogy that we have, right? Mm. We we talked about uh good good trilogies or good number threes back when we were talking about um uh, our Indiana last Jones Crusade. episode, yeah, Last Crusade, right? But not only is it like a great trilogy, but I think it's it is one of the last stories that we have. It is just like a true earnest hero story, like you were saying, like. Gollum is pretty much the ultimate bad. Sam is pretty much the ultimate good. And Frodo is stuck in the middle. For the last 20 years, which I I like, actually, but we've been going on this path of, like, looking at all the gray area in between, right? Like, Disney is like, what if Maleficent was misunderstood? Right. (laughs) Right? But, like, Lord of the Rings is this beautiful world. And we can talk about world building, all of that kind of stuff. But it's this really earnest hero story that isn't, like trying to reveal something new in the genre it's this team of good guys going up against an infinite bad guy that is impossible to beat and trying to bring all the people in the middle onto their side and honor is what wins and courage is what wins it's like this classic hero thing that we've been very like skeptical about I think for about the last 20 years and we kind of don't make movies like that anymore everyone's kind of the anti hero or the rogue and we like this gray area.
1: Yeah, and I think like that's really interesting and that simplicity again of like Frodo, he's the guy, He this is what he's trying to do, but now it's like, okay, maybe he's more of a rough past or rough background or maybe he used to steal stuff from other shires and now he's been rehabilitated. I don't know, there's got to be like some sort of wrinkle versus like, for sure. you know what? I just like taters and lambus bread and that's all I like and <laughs> I just kind of want to stay at home and smoke my pipe and not go anywhere. You know, he's so simple. Yeah. Um that makes the story
0: powerful and that doesn't mean that there aren't other complicated characters around him and he is complicated right he is tempted that is like what you're talking about the heart of that scene is this hobbit who is essentially good who has all the right intentions being forced into something that he's really not emotionally or spiritually prepared for and having to figure out how to deal with temptation, the temptation of power and everything that the ring represents. So it, it's it's not simple and, you know, it, it's not not complicated. The storylines between Boromir and Aragorn and, you know, what does it mean to serve your people? There is a ton of gray area in this in the series, but it's set against this backdrop that is very simple of like, you know that the orcs are bad. Like, there's no misunderstood orc. Right. <laughs> right. Like, you can lop off those heads all day long and never feel bad about it.
1: <laughs> but I do think it's why Golem stands out so much, because he's a character that does uh, evoke sympathy. He's a character that does, you sort of see, like, oh, he was this normal guy, and then he kind of yeah. got tempted by something. And then it took over his life. And I think right if I was going to pick another most meaningful character from the series, it is Golem. Like, he's he's the most memorable. He's the most parodied. He's the, you know, like what sure. everyone, you know, kind of thinks about, and he is really, really powerful. And that is more of that gray area character. Like you're talking about. Yeah. But again, the soul of it is Frodo. And it's true. There's not many Frodo's. There's not as many Luke Skywalker's. And if it is, it's almost like a joke. Like Chris Evans, Captain America is probably the closest character that we've had in the last 20 years. That's yeah. like that. Um, But he it's almost like, oh, everyone makes fun of him a little bit because he's so squeaky clean. There's kind of a wink to it, where with Frodo, it's just really earnest.
0: Exactly. The movie is earnest with itself. It is like... Real about its own emotions, and it's okay with the fact that it's like, this is good, this is evil, this is our wizard mentor character, right? Who is also good and shiny, you know? (laughs) Like, some of those allegories are, I think, what we would consider like, or some people would consider cheesy, but like, it owns it so well, and is then the people who made it weren't afraid of what it was that I think it still holds up. Like, it's still beautiful and wonderful today. So,
1: with all that in mind, Lord of the Rings, Rings of Power. Yep. What are you thinking going into it? How are you feeling watching this show? Like, give me your thought process of what this is.
0: My first reaction when I watched that first episode was just aghast at how much money was on the screen. Yeah. (laughs) Every single shot is gorgeous. The cinematography and the production design, literally everything is spared no expense. Like, it is... The most gorgeous television show I think I have ever seen.
1: Well, I I almost felt a little sad of like, this should be in a movie theater. And again, maybe it's my thinking about a movie theater, which is just two things that I love about movie theaters that you can't ever talk me out of. One is the grandness of it. It's just not the same as your house, no matter what. Totally. It's, It's grand, especially if you see it in a real movie theater like IMAX or even just a big, large screen, the sound system, all that sort of thing. And then two is experiencing it with other people, just like you're collectively kind of looking at these beautiful settings. And I was like cinematic is the word that comes to mind. And I was like, wow, this is breathtaking. Like that was a thought that I had several times going into it.
0: All of the marketing for the show is these beautiful shots of like people in the most ornate, gorgeous costumes. And it's just like a close up of like their hands and the fabrics and how just like beautiful this thing is. And I was like, that is a perfect representation of the show. (laughs) Like you didn't see a face in any of the marketing material. And I was like, yes, that is, that is like kind of exactly what the show is. It is just this immersive, gorgeous world.
1: The setting and the scene are the star of the show. And I have to say that like, I had really low expectations going into it. And there's certain Mm -hmm. things that I'm like, okay, I'm really expect like when the Coen brothers release a new movie, Spielberg has a movie coming out that's like an autobiography. We're going to cover it on this podcast this fall. And like my expectations are like 10 out of 10 uh, Where for the new Lord of the Rings show. I was like, I don't know, especially I think because of the Hobbit trilogy was so bad. It just put such a bad taste in my mouth. And so I was like, I was probably like two out of 10. Like I wasn't even sure if I was going to watch it or not. Um, But Then I, I saw it hit and I was like, you know what? I'm going to see it. And so my very low expectations were exceeded. But I know for a lot of people, they had really, really high expectations and those were dashed.
0: Right. And I'm interested in the reason why that is for some people. I think we're going to get into that when we talk about some of, I guess, the controversies of this show. But I do think that probably helped both you and I of not being super deep into the world going in. And I think that that is something about fandoms nowadays, which we've talked a little bit about in some of our other episodes. But I feel like the deeper you get into a fandom, the harder it is to enjoy new content because you hold it to such a high standard that it becomes almost impossible to match the love you have in your brain when someone else makes something in that for you. Whereas like people that are kind of medium fans of things are able to take whatever it is and kind of enjoy it for what it is. Uh, I think we see that a lot recently with like Star Wars specifically.
1: Well, and I think what's important with this show is this is a show for the masses. This is Amazon's answer to Game of Thrones, essentially. Uh, This is Amazon's answer to a lot of other fantasy. Like fantasy is kind of the it thing right now. And so there's so many things that have come out before and since. And so Amazon's like, okay, we got to make our fantasy play. And that's what Lord of the
0: Rings is. Absolutely. And Amazon has also done Wheel of Time. Um, Netflix is is doing The Witcher. Um, The Game of
1: Thrones prequel. Dune, the new Dune movie is going to come out next year.
0: You're right. It really is having kind of this moment right now, which was, I think, in all honesty, kicked off by um, HBO doing Game of Thrones back in 2010, which is interesting because 10 years ago, HBO model was very much built on let's find a niche audience and we can create some content for them They'll buy the subscription to HBO and that's that's good enough. And they didn't have to mass market things. And Game of Thrones was not supposed to be a mass marketed show. It was supposed to be a niche show for the fantasy community. And then everyone loved it. And so it became this huge boom that now everyone is making a play for. And obviously the Lord of the Rings show here is really dropping into that space.
1: And I think this is so interesting is because they're not going to make a show that's really for the super fan. They're trying to say, hey, this is a show for everyone. And I think if I do have a criticism of it So far, and again, we're only two episodes in. I'm interested to see how it'll go. But there's not the clean Frodo, Gollum, Sam. I know Gollum's not really introduced until Two Towers, but like, there's not kind of the clean like, hey, this is our hero. This is what he or she wants. This is the mission of what we're trying to do. There, it's so much more world building. And so I'm like, if you ask me like right now, like, okay, Rob, you're on pitch. What Rings of Power is? It would take me a lot of paragraphs to explain what the show is and what it's
0: about. Right. And that's one of the things right now is like, I'm not exactly quite sure where this show is going. And I'm loosely okay with that. But I would say that is my criticism too. The central conflict has not quite drawn me in. What has drawn me in is this world. It looks gorgeous. I like to look at it. I like to kind of just be in it with everybody else, which kind of opens up the conversation about world building genres. I think fan, the fantasy genre is probably the biggest world building genre out there, but sci-fi certainly dabbles in it as well. How, how do you feel about like novels and shows and series that are basically completely propped up by world building? Are you into that kind of thing or is it not as much your bag?
1: I hate it. It's probably my, (laughs) it's my, okay. Uh, I hate when we chase world building versus character. I would okay. always put character over world, world building. That said, I think Lord of the Rings is in a really tough spot because they can't just run back the playbook again. Right. They can't just be like, okay, we're like, this is what star Wars got in trouble with a little bit with the new trilogy of like, okay, we're going to have a new Luke and we're going to have a new death star. And we're just going to like, that's the meal. And we're just going to make it again. I also think that's cheap. And this may be what's problem with sequels overall, but like, yeah, yeah. I think world building has become such a buzzword thing. Um, it works great for video games. I don't like when it's the driving force behind a story. And it's probably my biggest fear here is that, like, oh, we're building a world. And I do think the world building is impressive. I do think, like, yeah. not only the settings and locations, but I really got a sense of, like, all the characters. Like, I got a sense of the dwarves and where they live and what dwarf culture's like. I got a sense of the yeah. elves. The elves actually reminded me a lot of Vulcans uh, in this, of, like, yes. okay, they're very... They're very logical and they're very like cold blooded and they're emotionless. And I was like, oh, these are Vulcans, which I never thought before in all my little watching. But I was uh-huh. thinking not just the pointy ears, but just everything about the elves. I was like, oh, this is Vulcans from Star Trek. Anyway, I I was thinking about all this and I was like, oh, this is cool. But again, I was like, what I care about and what matters and the most important thing in stories is character mm-hmm. and stakes. And if I can't yep. if you don't start with character and stakes then whatever else world building is like special effects. It's great to be something that happens around it. But if it Uh becomes the thing then it gets weird and
0: wonky. So I would love to be on the opposite side of this. because Then we could have a big rousing debate. But I generally agree. Um, Some members of my family um, have introduced me to like fantasy literature and stuff and they are super into world building. And what I've gathered from having longer conversations with them is that there is sort of maybe not a type of person out there, but people who engage with stories for the point of being in a world, maybe similar to why some people would play a video game, like you said. And so the rush of reading the story maybe has less to do with the characters and more to do with being in this fantastic world where things are different and things work differently. And there's different special powers that do certain things or different lands where the vegetation does different stuff. And it just, it's like a place for your imagination just to like, go and play that's not exactly where i'm at um I but feel like i do think there is to like a
1: video game if you're doing that though it, like because i think that's my big pushback with it and you know if you disagree yeah, with me for, come on our sure. facebook group <laughs> you can disagree i'm not saying i'm totally right but for me i'm like i just feel like i'm in a video game all of a sudden where it's like oh i have this power and i can do this and i can shoot this way and like i do see so many shows going that way of like World building It's such a buzzword where I'm like, man, character and story like it ain't broke. Don't try to fix it. Like there is still nothing better than character and story.
0: Right. And I think there are some really great examples of the original Lord of the Rings story, Harry Potter and Game of Thrones. I think they're all they're all fantasy world building stories like the Harry Potter world is bananas, how like intricate it is. But it all kind of comes from this Kid, the entire original book series, all seven books, are told exclusively from his perspective.
1: Well, and wait, wait, wait. We talked about hey, there hasn't been another Frodo. Like Harry Potter actually is kind of a similar Frodo. And again, mm-hmm. what makes it so rooted and so grounded is like here's a kid, his parents are killed, there's a big monster after him, and then you build yeah. whatever word you, world you want. But that simple pitch actually mm-hmm. makes it so strong, and it's so much freaking harder to do than it is to say. Um, When you have a pitch that's that good is the million dollar idea, billion dollar idea. You know, it's incredible. But like I went to London this summer and so I actually got to go on a Harry Potter tour and see some of the locations and like, oh, here's so cool. Diagon Alley and all this different stuff. And it's really, really fun. But what roots it, what keeps it coming back is like this is a kid. He's an orphan. His parents are killed. His adopted family doesn't like him. And he's just trying yeah. to find his way in the world. Like it keeps coming back to that.
0: My one point in defense of great world building is I would say people who go into a story with a fully realized world the way that Tolkien did. Like Tolkien wrote Elvish and created his entire world and created Middle Earth and all the names of everything and all of the towns and the history before he started writing everything. Right. He was deep in it. But I think when you have these fully realized worlds as the world builds out. It feels less cheap and less fanservice-y if you've done the work on the front end in the way that some of these gigantic worlds do. That is one of my criticisms of Star Wars right now is it's, it was a small world and we're building the world on the characters and it feels cheap and somehow small. But when you have worlds like Lord of the Rings, right, where in, th- in this series they were talking about things like the Cimarils, or oh, what's it called? The World Across the Sea. I'm Um, never gonna get this Valinor Valinor Sure Valinor right They talk about Valinor And at the end of Return of the King right Frodo gets on a ship Spoiler alert And goes to the Undying Lands We we never see them But we hear all about them And they influence Everything that goes on So to see in this show Like we start out In the Undying Lands It feels like oh cool It doesn't feel cheap Because it was there The whole time In the background Of what people were saying And so it's these Natural extensions Of like suddenly Visiting places That people have been Talking about For several books It feels real And so I really do respect when people put all that work in on the front end so that it doesn't feel like sort of hopscotch cheap world building. I guess
1: this is a really good point. And I do think like there's a lot of sci fi movies, a lot of fantasy movies that don't feel lived in. They don't feel real. And so that world building probably isn't there. I think what I'd say is like, again, it sounds easy, but like the world has to serve the character, not the character serves the world. And yep. that's my big question with Lord of the Rings, Rings of Power. I'm like, OK, is the world serving these characters or are the characters really there of like, oh, we're going to show you this place that was mentioned in one brief passage of, you know, two <laughs> towers. Now we're going to get spend a whole episode there. I'm like, that's cool, but I don't care enough if the conflict in the character isn't there. And I'm not saying it is or isn't. I think this was really interesting about doing this podcast is I'm I'm right on the fence with this show of like. If I'm going to love it or if I'm going to be like, ah, it was fine, maybe I'll duck out for season two.
0: So I think it's hilarious that you compared the elves to Vulcans because that is exactly what I thought as I was watching this. And I thought it was going to be my hot take. The elves are clearly the coolest characters in Middle Earth. Like their armor is dope as hell. And they're like basically like angels that live in the woods. So to have a whole storyline built around them, like obviously like let's go. But it is interesting how many of the protagonists in this story, because they're all elves, have this very almost severe personality, right? They're not emotionless and they make choices and they struggle and wrestle with things like Gladriel is constantly wrestling with things. But their general tone of being these almost superior beings makes all of their plot lines feel very like heavy and very severe where we didn't necessarily get that with lord of the rings when we've got your hobbits aragorn and boromir and you have legolas just in the middle being very collected in the middle of all of these other personalities
1: right like frodo is genuinely afraid when the spirits come after him and he gets stabbed by them frodo is genuinely afraid As the ring starts to take a hold of me, he's so fragile that I think that's what makes it powerful. And I didn't think about that with Gladriel who is so, so, I'm like, I don't think she's afraid of anything. Like she's bad to the bone. She's tough. She's fearless. And that's what her character is, which is cool. But there isn't that arc that can happen. There isn't that, or at least the arc is harder to pinpoint. Like I couldn't say where it's going.
0: Well, and it's an interesting thing to build your story around. Like, the three main characters are all elves so far, and they're dropping in more characters here and there as we go along. But we've got Gladriel, we have Elrond, and then we've got the uh, the new elf down in the Southlands, um, era something Aramor Ooh, here we go. Come at me in the comments. Erendir? Erendir? I think so. We have three different storylines, and all of them are so, like, worried and Severe is the best word that I can I can come up with like nothing feels jovial or sort of light so even our new elf he's in this like forbidden romance like plotline which like I'm all about let's go this sounds great but it's so like mournful already because of his like demeanor that there's like the flirting is like is so melancholy that it's it's hard for me to like feel that joy of what this love you know should feel like right.
1: Listen, man, this is so interesting that you're hitting on because to me what's broken about Star Wars and started to go here, but since 1983, there hasn't really been a Han Solo. Even in the new movies, there is a Han Solo, but he's not like playful scoundrel, like I'm shooting dudes under the table, kind of good, kind of bad, like that sort of playful fun factor. And that's yeah, yeah, what yeah. this show is missing too. There's no, there's no Gollum who's saying fat, stupid Hobbit and that sort of thing that like. You're getting those fun lines. And then even Aragorn, who's like, I'm sitting in the cafe and I'm smoking and I'm looking like I'm a little shady and that sort of stuff. There's no like shades of gray on these characters. It is totally. uh, Yeah. Stoic and serious and heavy. And some of the Harfoots are like a little bit more fun and playful, but like they're almost too playful where I don't know. That is interesting.
0: Well, and one of the things with them is right now, all of the storylines are separate none of our storylines have really clashed together. And some of my favorite scenes in episode two were when different races came together. So when Elrond and Doran... They have their little contest and then they hang out and have like dinner with his his wife. That was one of the best scenes Agreed. because you have these dueling personalities in which they see the benefit in one another. Aragorn is pretty severe throughout the, the whole Lord of the Rings series. He's very brooding and he's like the banished king who's like wandering in the wilderness, who is in love with an elf he can't have, right? Like he's he's pretty like in there. But there's these moments where the hobbits are being so silly that he can't help but kind of roll his eyes or like the different personalities come up against each other and fill the other people with life.
1: That's a great point. The different, like, because what makes Aragorn so great is that he's the coolest guy. His nickname is Strider. He can kill guys. He can do all sorts of stuff. He's the coolest guy around. And yet he still kneels at Frodo's feet. And it's like, you're so much tougher and braver than I ever could be for carrying that ring. I'm your servant. And so that like juxtaposition is the
0: power. And I think that juxtaposition actually goes a step farther by simply making it more entertaining sometimes. I couldn't help but thinking of the first season of Game of Thrones after watching these episodes. And honestly, a lot of those protagonists are also, like, world-weary, honorable, stoic people in that show, too. Like, Sean Bean in season one is Ned Stark. He is constantly worried and troubled and looking for the high road. He's sort of elfish, right? But they stick him with his daughter, Arya, who's always chasing cats and wanting to sword fight. And it makes him like smile and it brings his life out of him because of that juxtaposition. Right. Jon Snow, he's like super stoic and he's always sullen, but they stick him with Tyrion from the jump who's sarcastic and he's witty. And he's different. And as soon as Tyrion leaves the wall, they bring Sam who's happy and dopey and he shows up to be Jon's best friend. Right? So like even when your main characters are these serious, severe leads, and they're always trying to do, kind of do the noble thing, you surround them with these other characters that may have mixed intentions or maybe big, bombastic personalities. And I think that juxtaposition helps sort of propel the energy and life of the story. And I feel like right now in Lord of the Rings... By focusing so much on these elves and they're hundreds of years old, it's it's kind of the uh, Dr. Manhattan problem, right? When you're immortal, you have this distant view of life, which they're doing a really good job at. But is it engaging?
1: Yeah. And that was actually one of the moments that did make me lean in when he's like, it's been 20 years for me. That's not a big deal for you. But you missed my wedding. You missed my kids being born. You missed all this sort of stuff. So you don't just get to come here after 20 years and be like, we're cool, like we're not cool.
0: He says, like, I lived a whole life in what seemed like an afternoon for you, basically, which was like, yeah, an amazing, amazing scene.
1: OK, do you have a most meaningful scene? Is there a scene that you really want to talk about that like this is the heart of the show?
0: Oof. OK, not necessarily the heart of the show, but I think my f- favorite scene so far, at least one that stood out to me, was the very end of episode two when the two harfoots are with the giant stranger and the moment where. He uses the fireflies to, like, try to communicate something to them. And it's this, like, breakthrough of hope. And they're like, oh, we finally got somewhere. And then all the lightning bugs die. And it was this beautiful, like, show-don't-tell thing of, like, we're right up against sacrifice. This isn't going to be easy. You just got a little bit of information. And in order to get this tiny little bit of information, he had to basically kill all of these fireflies. And like, again, they're fireflies. Who really cares? Right. But you see the shock on like their faces. And I thought it was just this wonderful, like, way to show this foreboding how this adventure is going to start to build. It was, it was a weirdly meaningful moment just to show a little bit of information.
1: I think that's a great moment to pick because I guess how I also felt watching this show was like I was never bored and I was no. just always leaning in and I was always like, oh, that's a really interesting moment. And even though there may not be a scene or a character that like quite defines it, there was like moment after moment that I was like, wow, this is interesting. I think for me, like the heart of it was like Gladriel going. And again, I'm going to butcher all the names, but she's going into like heaven or eternity. What do they call that place that she's going to Valinor? She's going there and it's like, that's the highest honor, right? Like she's reluctant because she's like, no, I'm not. The job's not finished, but they're like, no, you've done it. No one's ever turned it down. You have the highest honor. And they're even doing this weird thing where they're kind of disrobing their armor and then they're like, hey, give me this sword and like she won't give the sword away. And again, it was another one of those like show don't tell moments where she's like, "Ah, I can't let it go. And then as they're about to enter the most beautiful thing in the world, all the other elves are looking that way, but she's the one that's kind of breaking ranks and is like, nope, I'm looking at my dagger and I'm going to grab that thing. I'm going to get out of here. And so just her wrestling with that, that was the first moment that I was like, okay, she is like, An elf and kind of fearless, but seeing that turmoil in her and her decision there made me really like her. That was one of the first moments where I was like, "Okay, that's a character. That's a struggle. That's a choice. That's a moment that really jumped out to
0: me. Even just the fact that that dagger that she just wanted to give up, like was her brother's. And for only being in one scene, the sort of shadow that her brother casts over that whole first episode done really, really well. Um. Yeah, I, I agree. I'm never bored watching it. Each scene I'm like focused on. But at the end, I'm left a little bit with like, am I in love with this? And I think it's the Vulcan problem. And I think I was looking at some of like the IMDb and some of the stuff on Amazon. I think we're about to get a lot more human characters from a couple different aisles and, and, and such. And so I'm interested to see how that sort of plays into it as we get more protagonists from the world of men, how that sort of swings the tone of the show a little bit.
1: And with the world building thing, like I'm empathetic of the fact that, yeah, if they're building five seasons, they're trying to lay a lot of groundwork. And that's what's so tricky with TV is you're trying to tell a real story in the moment, but you're also trying to lay out all these different characters and all these different threads and like, okay, here's a B, a C, a D storyline. And so it's a tricky thing to do.
0: Which honestly, and not to keep going back to this well, but it makes me think of Game of Thrones again. Um, And the shows are obviously not, a one to one comparison, but they both have this task of like dropping you into this fully realized fantasy world. and They both have complicated history and politics and geographies, and they all have to communicate that to the viewer within a pretty quick amount of time. And it's interesting to me how each show's try to tackle that problem, you know? And I'm remembering the pilot of Game of Thrones, and you meet. Every single significant character for the rest of the series, basically, in that first episode. But they do that by bringing them all to the same place. Everyone except for, like, Daenerys and Drogo, they all come to Winterfell, and they're all there together, right? And so they create the conflict for the whole show through this on-screen character conflict in that pilot episode. And you see relationships form, some relationships are good, some are immediately fractured, some have history, some don't, but you see it all playing out on screen with them together, and that sets up the, the show's plot conflict. And then... They send you out across the world, right, with all of your leads and their own separate plot lines. But you still feel grounded as you go out into the world because you kind of feel this pull of relationship that you got from bringing them all together at first. And to be fair, Rings of Power did do that a little bit with Elrond and Gladriel when they're together in a few scenes there. Um, And obviously, this is not the only way to tell a story, right? There's tons of ways to do it. But it's interesting to me the contrast of these two fantasy genres and that the first episode of Rings of Power, most of her main characters are introduced in totally different locations across this massive, gorgeous, gorgeous world and how that made me feel and how connected to the story I felt.
1: Right. They're they're starting it so grand. Like, one, they started – one thing I did love was – they had the little boat race. Didn't it make you think of it again, where she (laughs) makes a little paper boat and she's going in (laughs) and like, again, that's a movie, a book that we talk about a lot in this podcast, but we both love that book. And I was like, Oh, this is like a reference to it weirdly, but like (laughs) I was already in, I'm like, okay, this is a paper boat going down a stream. And so it goes from there into this like grand voiceover of like where everything's going and the orc fights and all that sort of stuff. And, you know yeah. how I feel about voiceover. Like, I was like, okay, I'm in. Like, I love this. This is, like, grand and epic. But again, yeah, yeah. to your point, it's really, really sweeping, and it's not focused the way uh, Game of Thrones is, or even the way that, like, yeah, Lord of the Rings has that big voiceover, but then it starts at a little birthday party, and it spends a lot of yeah. time at a birthday party, and it's like, okay, we're going to get Gandalf there. We're going to get Bilbo. We're going to get Sam. Like, we kind of get our main heroes mostly all there in, that, in the Shire.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And as we introduce them more, it's through the the through team, Frodo. right? The team. Yeah. Right. He starts out with just him and Sam and then him and Merry and Pippin. And then he gets Strider, who becomes Aragorn. And then they go to the Rivendell and they get the rest. You know, that's another way to do it is to build your fellowship or whatever your 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 cast of characters that then break up into the ensuing movies. Right. And they're all on their own journey. But they come in through a central point, even if they meet in different places. Again, that's not the only way to tell a story. But I felt like I connected to those stories more by them being more centralized at the front end than this one was.
1: So we've been doing more nuanced pushbacks. There are a bunch of pushbacks that kind of the fan communities had. We've talked around them a little bit, but I read this Guardian article. I thought I'd do a quick hit list of pushbacks and see what okay. you think about each one of these. Let's do it. Here's the first one. Some fans are upset Gladriel is now a warrior instead of a sword-free sorceress, as she was in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. In general, the show has let female characters play out, including both Browan and Gladriel.
0: Uh, oh, any thoughts on that? Um, no, I think it's kind of interesting. I mean, I, I don't know. Again, if I was super deep into the world, I, I think maybe I'd be like, no, like there are warrior elves and there are other kind of elves and she was in Mirkwood and therefore she's blah, blah, blah. This is not her backstory. Like if I was super into it, it might matter to me because it might be ruining a character that I know and love. But Gladriel to me is just like Cate Blanchett. So this is like new fun Cate Blanchett with a sword. Like I'm kind of into it. And again, it's because I'm not super close to it. Um, I can see the reason if it is like bugging for some people. But like I'm into it. Like cool. Let's start her off in a different place and see how she evolved into Cate Blanchett.
1: Listen, this is not the Bible. It is not the Constitution. It is okay to take Gladriel and give her a sword. Like do what's (laughs) best for the story, and it's so much more interesting for her to have a sword and be more of a warrior for the story. Like I literally picked that moment, my most meaningful moment was her and her sword. And oh, so yeah, I yeah. think I think that's a nonsense pushback.
0: Oh, oh yeah. If if the pushback is against like women being warriors or the fact that the women have swords, if that's the pushback, that is fully nonsense. Like even the other lady, not Gladriel but uh the new one, uh, Br- Brownwin. Oh man, I'm butchering the names this time around. Um but like, her fight scene where she kills the orc, that scene's amazing. It's it's not like she busts out some kind of new magical, like, Jackie Chan orc killing skills, right? Like Like, this orc is attacking her son, and she, like, does what she has to do. And it's the most harrowing fight in the series so far, and no one really has the upper hand and she comes out on top, and it feels like that's exactly the way that that would play out, and it totally comes from her character. The village doesn't believe in her. They say, like, you don't have proof, and so she's like, you know, you want proof? Here's your proof, right? It totally comes from her her character. It's believable. It pushes her forward, and she gets this amazing moment. Like, to say that, like, the women shouldn't be in that position, if that's the pushback, super-duper nonsense.
1: Yeah, it was it was great. Again, it was character, was story. I'm, I'm on it. Next one, there have been long-running controversies about how the show has included black elves, dwarves, and humans in the adaptation as opposed to overwhelmingly white original trilogy. Complaints, uh, clashes with Tolkien's original work has led to debates about whether dwarves can be black because they live underground. Uh, I don't even want to dignify this one with a response. Like, I'm like,
0: no, I don't either.
1: <laughs> we're talking about I, I... elves with pointy ears, <laughs> hobbit with furry feet, like... They can be black. They can be white. They can like whatever ethnicity they can be. And in fact, like I'm wide open arms, like bring on everyone. Like it doesn't matter the ethnicity. I think it's great. No, give more opportunities. This is such a nonsense pushback.
0: Yeah, that it is absolutely nonsense. The argument that they're trying to base in some form of logic of this is A story set in a world that is based on medieval Europe, blah, 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 whatever. When this book was originally written, it was written for a primarily European and American, largely Caucasian audience, because that was the area of the world that we were. We are now talking about a global audience, right? Amazon has dropped. We haven't actually said the number on this thing. They dropped four hundred and sixty five million dollars on this season, four hundred sixty five million dollars. That is just shy of 60 million dollars an episode. Game of Thrones was 10 million dollars an episode. This is six times more expensive than one of the most expensive shows ever made. Um, This is for a global audience. Right. And so it is absolutely positively okay for us to be making this show that is about the human experience through a fantasy of elves and dwarves and whatever that looks like everybody. It is nonsense to say otherwise.
1: I I totally agree. I Again, I don't even want <laughs> to dignify it because I'm like, this is nonsense. You know, like, right. yeah, if you're going like, to make a story set in China and then it's set in 18th century China and then all of a sudden there's a bunch of white people there, it's like, oh, that's weird. You know, like, why would you... Like, right. that's... <laughs> That to me is weird where race matters in the story, but like in Middle Earth, it's like, no, like, like stop being so sacred and precious about this versus like, hey, let's tell a story that's more inclusive and invites other people. And I think it's fine. Um, Another pushback, which is like diehard Tolkien devotees see the show as departing from the source material, skipping over parts that should have been adapted. The general idea is Jackson's trilogy was faithful to the work while this is not.
0: This is one that I don't have the knowledge to really push on because I'm not like I've never read the Samarillian. I've never read the appendices. I do know that Tolkien's, I believe, grandson is a consultant on the show. He's credited in the credits. Um, it might be a great grandnephew or something. I'm not sure. But someone from the Tolkien estate <laughs> um, is consulting on uh, on this show and um, so they have like these creators, these people have the blessing of the estate to dive more into the world and create new material, um, which if you love something like and want to play more in the world, you're going to have to create new material. So I think like I st- that is a- what it is.
1: This is another one. Just nonsense pushback to me. I just think like if you're going to make five seasons out of a show, you've got to make a million creative choices. Right. There's so many choices yeah. about what the setting looks like and that sort of stuff. And it's inspired by the source material, but it's not an adaptation because J.R.R. Tolkien wasn't like, oh, the season three cliffhanger is going to be this. And that's what he wrote down. Like, <laughs> that's not what he did. Like it's so much easier to right. adapt three books than it is to take uh, the Samarillion and like, Hey, we're going to build out a whole world, build out shows. Like you're going to have to make choices and they're right. going to go against it. So I think we should not be judging it on J- what J.R.R. Tolkien wrote. We should be judging it on is it compelling is it character driven or not maybe yeah. is it faithful to the spirit of what lord of the rings is sure. and i do think this is faithful to the spirit at least to me i'm like this is not right. like elves are breakdancing and dwarves are you know like there's there's no like jump the shark moment to me in this i'm like this is yeah. the vibe and the tone it feels like a lord of the rings show to me
0: i was l- looking at like the way that the rights were, I was trying to do some research because I, I felt like this feels so much like the Peter Jackson original movies, like the look of everything and the design of so much of the different races and everything. I was like, is there any kind of hangover here? And it's um, Weta Workshops, uh, who did the, the creature development on the original trilogy, is doing work on this as well. So that's probably some of it. But I mean, this feels like it could be a companion piece to the original trilogies and it's being made by a completely different creative team. So... That's amazing.
1: Yeah, I agree. It's been really fun. I, to me, I'm like, what a time to be alive. Like I said before, sure. we're getting a Lord yeah. of the Rings TV show um, yeah. and new episodes are just coming on our TV for free every single week. And you can watch right. them or not watch them. But I'm like, this is something that should be fun. Or if it's not fun, just move on. But like, right. I just don't understand how it gets toxic. Like it's I can't imagine if J.R.R. Tolkien is alive and reading IMDb quotes of what people are saying like what is that dude thinking of like oh my gosh what did i create like is right is is toxic fandom the ring of power where it actually like this fandom like corrupts people's heart and corrupts people's minds like yeah i don't i'd be so interested to see what c.s lewis and J.R. tolkien would see about the state of fandom today
0: what are you looking forward to with this with this series I really want to said sort of what we're we we we've said sort of what we're like hesitant about so far but we got six more episodes in this season like what are you looking forward to what do you hope for it
1: I think I can answer that in my meaning of the show answer like I can combine oh, okay. that which is like cool To me the meaning of Lord of the Rings is this ultimate question of like when we want to chase something powerful and think that we can control it and wield it for our own good and then it starts to take hold of our heart and our life, and just goes crazy. Like, a lot of people, academic critics and that sort of thing, actually said what the ring symbolized, like, this comes out in the 40s, like, the ring symbolizes nuclear technology, and the ring actually is a nuclear weapon, and the fact of, like, oh, we think we can harness it for good, but eventually it turns into evil, and it destroys all sorts of things, and there's so much
0: more Hmm, of a higher cost. Sure.
1: I think they started to hint at that at the end of the last episode, where the boy finds, uh, Sauron's like staff or whatever else it is and I think like this idea of the rings which is like oh we're gonna actually wield this power for good but then there's a catch right it becomes a little bit more and it turns into evil I want to see if they can really take that theme through the whole show I want to see how that affects the elves how that affects the dwarves like what that idea does and if they really stay true to that and if that's the direction where it's going I want to see the villains come more alive, and what they're, you know, I want to see more orcs, I want to see more battles. And so, that sense of evil, what it does to the characters, and is that the way they twist and turn compelling? I want to see if that happens, because that's the meaning of Lord of the Rings to me.
0: I love that. Um, I think I am... Excited to sort of just see where they go with it And I'm really hoping that in these next few episodes we get some more human characters not knocking on the elves I think you're great, but like I want that swashbuckle in the middle of this we have that new man on the on the raft with gladriel Um, I'm hoping for like some great Boromirs or Aragorn's to be in in the middle of this so that we can get I don't know something that maybe I I connect a little bit closer to um, because I love the world they're making um, and I'm hoping some of these other characters kind of clash together. You know what I would love? Our new elf who is in a, uh, star-crossed love situation down in the Southlands. I would love for him and our Harfoot girl to somehow have to work together because that would be amazing. She's so like carefree and zany and he's so like stoic and forlorn. It would be the best combo. That's what I want. That's not going to happen, but that would be bomb.
1: <laughs> that, that's a great pitch. You know, as you were talking, I was like, you know who would make a good elf is Jeremy Renner. I feel like Jeremy Renner is (laughs) very much as elf energy, where like he kind of needs an Amy Adams. Um,
0: Welcome to the meeting of the movie where we make fun of Jeremy Renner, whether he's in the project we're talking about or not.
1: Sorry to Jeremy Renner's agent or Mom. Here's my final question, and then we can go, which is okay, we're going to do another episode at the end of this Mm -hmm. season. Yep. Do you think you're going to like this show more or less when the season ends? If you had to predict your own feelings about it, do you think, oh, I'm going to like this show more, or I may be a little bit more out on it when the season ends?
0: I think I'm going to like it more. And that's not just because I want to be optimistic. I, I think the direction I see it going is starting to help with some of my criticisms that we've talked about with like the Vulcan problem and things being a little bit too separate. I I think they're pushing our, Races of people together uh, and I think it's going to be more fun and it's going to smooth out some of my criticism So I think I'm gonna really love it
1: my two probably favorite shows of all time are the leftovers and breaking bad and both those shows um, particularly the leftovers didn't really get good until like episode four or five and so like to me It's so crazy or even lost with walkabout where locks feet kind of wiggle like that's when i was just all in on lost is like that's that episode. episode three right episode three of yeah so season
0: that, yeah of season one it takes a little a bit
1: a little earlier on but still that was the moment where i was like okay wherever the show goes i'm in so i do yeah. think it's so crazy to like everyone has a take everyone's so passionate you know where it's like hey there's a bigger story we're telling here and like again in this name of world building i do want to give them time and so yeah. i'm the, i'm same with you i really hope that I come to this in the end of the season, I'm like, okay, I'm in, I can't wait. What's gonna happen in season two? Like, We really have something here? And that's what I'm hoping and that's what I'm anticipating.
0: Yep, well, we would love to hear what you guys think. We know this is the most watched show on Amazon Prime ever in its first weekend, so I know you guys have, have watched it. Come find our Facebook group, join the Facebook group, tell us what you think. There's a whole community of people there always talking about movies, posting movie memes. We wanna see you guys there. Thank you for tuning into this episode.
1: That is it for this time, we will see you next time on the meaning of the movie and or TV show.